Welcome back to the podcast, Raise Your Hand. I am your host, Nathan Farley, and you are currently listening to episode number six. I'm so excited not only for this episode and for you to hear the conversation, but also to introduce my listeners of this podcast to someone who has been not only a great friend, but also a great mentor in my life over the past uh, 15 months. I met Jared Stacy about 15 months ago because he is the college pastor of a church that I interned with this past summer and that I'll be working with again this upcoming summer. And Jared and I immediately started a friendship that could involve us sitting in a coffee shop and us just having a very extended and long conversation about one question, completely losing track of time, and then being late for whatever meeting that we had to go to. So uh, this podcast is no exception. What we decided to do is have a conversation surrounding the question, what should I do with my doubts about God? Um, It is a conversation that we think is vitally important, not only for college students, which is what we primarily work with, but also with anyone who's a follower of Jesus, because at some point in your life, you are going to face some kind of circumstance um, that is going to lead to doubts that you have about maybe the person of Jesus, maybe the character of God, or maybe if anyone is even listening to your prayers. And so once again, in this podcast, we address the question, what should I do with my doubts about God? I'm really excited to introduce to you my friend, my mentor, Jared Stacy. Why don't you introduce yourself to the podcast, Jared? Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Uh, my name is Jared Stacy. I am the young adults pastor at Spotswood Baptist Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, I am a graduate of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in one of the greatest cities on the planet, New Orleans, and spent uh, my time in undergrad at uh, Liberty University uh, in Lynchburg, Virginia. But I was born and raised in the Sunshine State, uh, home home to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, <laughs> and our our all time great quarterback now, Tom Brady. So, uh, are you excited about that? <laughs> Yeah, I am. I am pumped, man. Uh, Really excited. I should mention, uh, (laughs) I'm mentioning my wife and kids after Tom Brady. I have a problem. (laughs) I have a problem. Uh, No, I've been married for going on eight years uh, to my wife, Stevie. Uh, We have three incredible kids, uh, Stella, Mac, Kiana, uh, aging four, almost three and two. Uh, So we've got three kids and uh, our Loving life in lockdown right now. I was about to say, and you're in lockdown. So how has uh, just even today been with three kids in lockdown? Any crazy stories happen or has this been a... Yeah, if I could, uh, if, if I could, I actually had uh, all my kids in, in, in an upturned crib on our bed. Uh, we had some box seating <laughs> for my office today. <laughs> so uh, no, we've had some Play-Doh. Uh, they were eating Play-Doh uh, for most of the morning. And uh, I don't know, uh, although the grandparents just offered to watch them for tomorrow night. So they're the only people that we are seeing uh, in our in our lockdown. And so uh, thankfully, they're also her babysitters. So um, I just want to go on public record and saying my wife is the real MVP here uh, in this lockdown. And uh, grandparents are a close second. So, yeah. <laughs> I believe um, it. My sister-in-law posted uh, on Facebook uh, this week. She said, uh, grandparents always want the kids over. She said, after this lockdown, they can have the kids. <laughs> like they can actually have them. <laughs> here, here, you, you take them. You take them. Yeah. So funny. Well, I'm really excited for the conversation we're going to have today um, because I think that it impacts a lot of people and it impacts a lot of people that maybe aren't even willing to talk about it. 
the conversation we're going to have today is what am I supposed to do with my doubts about God? Which this question implies that people have doubts about God, right? Um, but maybe the, the, the question we should be asking, uh, it's the first one we'll address is, are followers of Jesus allowed to have seasons of doubt? And as I was even writing the question, I wrote seasons. I, I thought moments at first, but I think that we could all excuse moments of doubt, right? Like it's a moment that passes. But what about a season when honestly, the it's just not passing as quickly as you'd like, but you just have this immense doubt about maybe God or about Jesus or about even being loved by him? Like are, are Christians allowed to have doubt? Yeah, that's a great question. And my first simple answer is to say yes. It's impossible to read scripture attentively and faithfully and not recognize that many of God's people throughout history were racked with doubt. Mm-hmm. We could go to Elijah. We could go to Elijah after literally calling down fire from heaven. Yeah. And he goes out and says, God, I'm the only one left. And and there we see a doubt that moved into depression, right? Yeah. We could look at Abraham, who is called the man of faith, but he could also equally be called the man of doubt. Mm-hmm. But by God's grace, faith wins out in that polarizing, are you going to choose one or the other? Uh, so t- yes, doubt always has uh, seasons in our lives. Um, I know part of this conversation is is pushing forward. Do we stay in that doubt? How do we how do we exit those seasons? Um, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those realities, though, where we're referring to this as you know the dark night of the soul. I, I feel like it's important and crucial to answer this question by first pointing people to Scripture. Like, yes, this is something we see in people yeah. who love God and are held up as examples of faith. Doubt can take many forms. For me, certainly intellectual doubt. Um, mm-hmm. doubting the answers to particular questions of logic. But yeah. then there's also uh, circumstantial doubt, mm-hmm. um, doubt that that actually canvases or masks itself as pain. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so we're talking about a wide range of experiences. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they're maybe starting to listen to this podcast, they're thinking that this is going to be an intellectual conversation about intellectual doubt, about us trying to prove apologetically the resurrection of Jesus. And like, there's a podcast for that, for sure. Uh, There's a lot of amazing apologists, a lot of amazing historians that talk about that. But at least in my experience, most of my doubt has not been intellectual. There's never been a moment where I thought it's not plausible that there's a creator or a designer behind this world. I mean, that just seems obvious. There's never been even a moment where I've doubted the resurrection of Jesus, per se. Like, once I started following Jesus, my doubt has never been, I don't think he got out of the tomb. My doubt's always been very emotional. It's always been attached to not, is there a creator, but is it possible that he cares for me? Right. Like or in this moment of my suffering, are my prayers actually being heard? It's not because I don't think there's someone on the other end. It's because I don't think my prayers are getting to him. <laughs> right. Like that. Right. All my doubt feels very emotional. And I remember I was listening to a podcast one time um, and they talked about this idea, the difference between intellectual and emotional doubt. Um, so emotional doubt, a good example would be if I put a two by four on the ground of the pavement and we played the game, the floor is lava and you were to have to walk across that two by four, 
no one would be worried that they'd fall on the ground because it's just easy, right? Like you can walk right. on a balance beam, like that's not a problem. But if you put that two by four over something that is actually dangerous and you fall into it, like let's say some kind of, of chemical that would actually burn your skin or something, you know that you can walk across that two by four because you've done it a million times playing the floor is lava. But all of a sudden when there's actually life and death at stake, you get scared and you get insecure and you think, I don't think I can do this anymore. And so in the same way, like when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about life and death. And so oftentimes that elevates uh, maybe yeah. the insecurity you have. It doesn't mean that you actually are skeptical of these things. It just means there's more at stake. Um, and I think that that's an important part of this conversation. The Atlantic did an interview of a bunch of um, what we would probably call deconversion stories. So people yeah. who walked away from Jesus. And this is straight from the Atlantic's research. They said this. With few exceptions, students would begin by telling us that they had become atheists for exclusively rational reasons. But as we listened, it became clear that for most, this was deeply emotionally, a deeply emotional transition. So they almost have this deconversion moment. Like it wasn't like they were reading a textbook and then they weighed the facts and they thought, yeah, I just don't think this is true anymore. Typically, it involves some form of, like you said, circumstantial suffering where they can't rationalize their circumstances and the goodness of God. And so instead of trying to figure out how do these two things mesh together, they just say, suffering is here in my face. I'm just going to address this and not address the character of God. And so um, I think that's an important part of this conversation is understanding, is my doubt intellectual or is my doubt emotional? Um, and that's not me saying emotional doubt isn't isn't worthy. Like emotional doubt is real. I think about Thomas in the New Testament. Yep. Uh, we call him doubting Thomas a lot, right? Which is so silly because uh, I guess like, I don't know what the time span was, but before the moment where he said, I need to see the resurrected Jesus in order to believe, he had actually said, I'm ready to go die with Jesus. Like there was a moment. Right. This is when when Lazarus has just died and and Jesus is about to go visit him. And Thomas says, hey, let's go with Jesus and die with him. So it's really Thomas starts off in the gospel story as a man of great faith, a man of great conviction, a man who's willing to die for what he believes. Um, but then when Jesus dies, his hope does as well. Understandably so. And so it was this emotional, oh my goodness. Like, and that's why he didn't want to believe too quickly because he had been hurt. I think that's uh, the thing maybe about cynicism that comes into this play about doubt and faith is a lot of people think cynics are born. I don't think that's true. I think cynics are always people who have cared too deeply at one point and their heart has been hardened by the disappointment and discouragement they felt. So any kind of skeptic or cynic is really someone who probably cared what we would say a lot and then was hurt by that. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm the, the champ of cynics because I know myself <laughs> better than anybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, cynicism has a way of creeping in and, and producing the intellectual doubt, um, because cynic cynicism prides itself in seeing what it believes to be real. Mm -hmm. uh, that that in a, in a culture that prizes or makes authenticity a virtue, uh, cynics are our saints because mm -hmm. they stand back and they say, "I see things the way that they really are," mm -hmm. and we see this even as people approach scripture. Uh, and and again, I like what you said: intellectual and emotional doubt. It's kind of like it's kind of like the difference between a pancake and a waffle. Uh, a waffle, you can kind of cordon off your syrup in your individual, you know, little, little waffle cells. But when mm -hmm. you pour a pancake, when you pour a syrup on a pancake, 
is getting everywhere. Yeah. And so sometimes when we're going through seasons of doubt, it's hard to tell mm-hmm. what's intellectual, what's emotional. But when we look at cynicism, cynicism has a way of, like Teddy Roosevelt would say, uh, the critic the critic never enters the arena. Uh, yeah. The man in the arena is the one with the blood, the sweat, the tears, the action. And, and so I think a lot of times uh, doubt is a form of denial. Uh, and, and we can keep ourselves from actually exploring the doubt because it's actually safer to mm-hmm. maintain this sense of distance because that's what cynicism promotes. It says, I'm not going to get involved in any of this because I, I already see things the way that they really are. Yeah. And that's where it becomes very difficult to hear Jesus's words where he says, uh, do not fear, but believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's not forget what he's saying here. That's an invitation. That's a command. Yeah. <laughs> Don't fear, believe. And I love mm-hmm. what, what Bonhoeffer says, because some of us, and I, I would read that and, and feel, that's hard for me. That's incredibly yeah. difficult. But what if we acknowledge what Bonhoeffer leads us to see is that what God commands, he mm-hmm. provides. That God yeah. never offers a commanding word without also offering a gracious word uh, at the end of it as we step out in faith. Yeah. So. When we when we process even intellectual or emotional, you know, as a pastor and also as a follower of Jesus myself, going through seasons of doubt, um, I've learned to be very aware of how much I'm not aware, mm-hmm. and to ask myself the question: What do I want to believe in this moment? What do I want to be true in this moment? And mm-hmm. when I ask myself that question, when I invite others to ask myself that question, it it sets me on a process and on a journey towards actually dealing with doubt. Yeah. Versus operating in denial and in cynicism, uh, yeah. which which halts the journey, unfortunately. Yeah. So so let me ask this, um, because obviously the question we want to get to is, well, what are the best things you can do when you're going through moments or seasons of <laughs> right. doubt? But before we get to the best things, what are some of the worst things that someone could do uh, in moments or in seasons of doubt? Like what are things that would actually harm them? I think the first thing I would say to anyone who's listening, who's asking this question, what are some of the worst things I could do with my doubt? I think the worst thing you could do with your doubt is think that you're stuck in it, mm-hmm. uh, is to think that God himself is rolling his eyes at you, thinking, mm-hmm. I've made it so clear. How can you not just believe it? Wow. I, I really want everyone to know from a following Jesus experience, because this is what God has done in my life. He doesn't roll his eyes at us. He never gets tired of shoring up our faith and our confidence in who he is. I, I, mm-hmm. the scripture tells us he, he is a generous giver and yeah. he doesn't give with any kind of reproach. And that's not a word I go around using, but when I, when I look at that, what James says is he gives without reproach. I think of a lot of people who are hoarding toilet paper right now, which is probably the new currency in you know 2025. <laughs> yes. Uh, so maybe they're onto something. But I think of people who maybe are preppers or hoarders uh, and hoarding these supplies right now uh, in the middle of COVID-19. And, and when someone's in need, they say, you didn't prepare. Mm-hmm. And, and they, use it, they use someone's need and desperation as an opportunity to elevate their position. God's not like that. Mm-hmm. That, that God actually humbles himself, that, that God enters into 
those seasons. So for anyone saying, what's the worst thing I could do with my doubt? I think the worst thing that you could do with your doubt is thinking that your doubt is, is a final, a final situation that it's permanent. Uh, and, and, and the second thing in a practical way, um, what's some of the worst things you could do with doubt? Um, I think one of the worst things you could do is let an internet algorithm chart your course. Hmm. Whether that's YouTube, whether that's Instagram, TikTok, I, it doesn't matter the media or the format. I, I think we need to understand that um, the algorithms that we go to on the internet to cult- cultivate our information streams, um, mm-hmm. those are artificial. Yeah. And and you start watching particular things. This isn't this isn't a statement to say don't read broadly. No, absolutely, read and explore broadly because I think the resurrection holds up to intense, intense scrutiny. But anyone can be an expert. One of my buddies, uh, Robbie Dawson at Park Ridge uh, Church in Florida, uh, he challenged me one time with this statement. He said, you know, I think this generation and incoming is going to be the most published generation in history, right? Everyone mm-hmm. has an opinion. Everyone has a word. Uh, and I, we're all watching Dr. Fauci right now because he's got yep. the credentials, and yeah. so I think my my just a practical uh, statement there is to not let um, social media algorithms tell you mm-hmm. what to watch next on a journey of processing your doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of leads us into like, what are some healthy things? Um, mm-hmm. But I think uh, just the final thing. So if there's three things, number one, don't don't ever think you're trapped in your doubt. Number two, practically don't let an Internet algorithm guide your journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number three. Uh, the worst thing you could probably do with your doubt is is keep it to yourself, yeah. Um, and, and and kind of muscle through it and say like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wait until it gets better. Mm. Um, I think that there's there's a lot of grace to be found in kind of stepping out and saying and I, I have this position and this platform where I should rather say this vantage point as a college pastor, where <clears throat> I wish that some of the twenty somethings that I get to work with would be more honest about the fact that they're not a Christian at 19 versus mm-hmm. coming out as a non-Christian at 25. Wow. Um, and, and I, it's kind of a, it's kind of a backwards thing to think about, but um, if, if what you're doing right now and what you're believing right now is not Christian, you'd be better off communicating to those who love you and those who care for you. Functionally right now, I'm not a Christian. So yeah. let's be clear, like on this podcast, on this moment, encouraging some to say my faith journey might be better served at this point by acknowledging what I know to be true, that I'm not a practicing Christian. Yeah. That will give you a sense of honesty to actually approach God for who you are. Cause yeah. that's, if there's one thing we know about God, right. He cares about who we really are. He does. He, he, he doesn't want to save and rescue the, the, the Christian who's putting on the mask, but is really saying like, I'm more a functional atheist uh, mm-hmm. He wants to save the functional atheist. Yeah. He, he he wants he loves you and wants to deal with you. Yeah. So the worst thing that you could do uh, is is kind of white knuckle it and tell yourself like I I will process this through watching enough YouTube videos to shore up my confidence. Like mm-hmm. it, you know what shore up your confidence is is God's presence. Yeah. Um, and and His presence is found in logic too. Let's yeah. let's be real. So. Yeah, I, I think those would be three things um, mm. practically and then also like from a positional hopeful standpoint yeah. uh, that unhealthy doubt can lead to. I think that's so good. Uh, starting off, I'll just mention the silence part, like suffering in silence is always the worst thing that you could do yep. um, because 
the the reality is if you're having doubts, maybe you're sitting in a pew or you're sitting in a chair or maybe you're just watching online now. I don't know what church looks like for you anymore. <laughs> but uh, but like you are not the only one who is experiencing these questions or this skepticism. Like there are a number of people who are having the same challenges. And when you give your other people the permission to go second and you express, hey, I'm struggling in this area and I don't know how my faith and belief can reconcile with each other. My faith and doubt can reconcile with each other here. You're going to be, hopefully, compassion and mercy is going to be lavished on you. Um, yep. If someone were to come to me after listening to this podcast and were to say, Nathan, I realized that while I've been saying I'm a Christian for a long time, I haven't functioned like one in years. I would be grateful for their honesty. Yep. And it wouldn't lead to any judgment or criticism. It would lead to really just, I know that was a scary thing for you to say out loud. Now let's talk about that, right? Like that's so, so important. Um, and the second thing about the algorithms, I think that's even more important because a lot of times you'll see someone go from being this maybe church kid. They went to VBS. They went to Awanas. They have all these verses memorized. They have some kind of breaking point where all of a sudden they cannot reconcile um, pretending anymore. And then all of a sudden they start posting all these YouTube videos all over Facebook about like, look, this proves that Jesus isn't real or this right. proves. Okay, it doesn't prove it. And the reason I'll say that is because throughout all of history, <laughs> no one has been able to prove like that Jesus did not resurrect. And you could say, well, no one's been able to prove that he has. And so maybe that's the point of faith here, that we're both taking a step of faith. If you're an atheist, you're taking a step of faith that despite the fact that you have an empty tomb and despite the fact that 11 people would flip the world upside down in the midst of intense persecution, you're taking faith believing it was all made up. And we're right. taking faith believing that he's alive. Um, and Donald Miller has a fantastic quote about this. Um, he says, my most recent faith struggle is not one of intellect. I don't really do that anymore. Sooner or later, you just figure out that there are some guys who don't believe in God, and they can prove that he doesn't exist. And there are some other guys who do believe in God, and they can prove that he does exist. And the argument stopped being about God a long time ago, and now it's just about who is smarter. And honestly, I don't care. And I, I, I remember reading that in high school and just being really feel resonating with that because you could listen to a TED talk that's 20 minutes and go, wow, they disproved the existence of God in 20 minutes, which if you actually think that's true, you're crazy. Or you could listen to a TED talk in 20 minutes and you're like, wow, they really proved that I'm right. And the fact is like, these are persuasive speeches. Their whole goal is to convince you of their argument. It's not to lay out all the facts and to, and to go back and forth. It's just to try to persuade you. And yeah. so uh, what we're saying here is it's better to belong to a community that you see face to face than it is to find a YouTube clip that you can share on your Facebook to try to disprove the existence or to prove the existence. Like like we wrestle with doubt in community. So as I, I'm kind of rushing to the next question, but the next question yeah, is yeah. what are some of the best things that you can do with your doubt? Um, and as I just said, do it with other people that you right. see face to face and not people that you find online. Um I think that that's such an important part. So what would you say? What are some of the best things that you can do with your doubt? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think community, and here's the thing, uh, that's something that we're all longing for right now um, yeah. and, and desire. And community, the church, is God's chosen instrument. I'll use Ray Orland's statement, right? That like the church grows a culture of life mm -hmm. on this on this earth. And we should be a little honest about the fact that um, uh, the church is a mess. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, again, I'll quote, quote, quote Ray Ortland on this as well. You know, he says, Ray Ortland says, the church is a mess, but it's Jesus's mess. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we have to believe that uh, when we come into the community that is the church, um, that's not to say we enter into tradition or that we enter into uh, authority, man-made authority. Um, yeah. The church is truly the, the community that lives under the rule and reign of Jesus. So mm-hmm. if Jesus is serious about helping people uh, overcome seasons or debilitating doubt, if he's confident that he, he wants to shore up people's confidence in him, uh, the church is, has, has those marching orders. The church yeah. is that community that we exist. Uh, we come together. We gather not just to uh, replicate a TED Talk, uh, mm-hmm. but we gather to showcase the body of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. Yeah. And so to invite people to process their doubt away from a gathering of Christians is condemning them to a life of wandering. Yeah. And it's better to struggle together than mm-hmm. it would be to be a cynic alone. Yeah. So I, when we look at that, I, th- I think everything that we say from this point on about like, what are some of the healthiest things or the best things you could do with your doubt goes through the filter of scripture and goes through the filter of the people of scripture, which is the church. Um, I think the other thing that we could say, maybe to go in line with the YouTube comment on the negative side, the positive side, uh, is that with doubt, there are very rarely, if ever, quick answers. Um, And so I think like we've been told at the beginning of everything with this pandemic, it's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a while. Uh, And and one of the realities, a great statement from a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, uh, out of St. Andrews. Uh, he says that every explanation is a bucket from a well. Uh, and and that, that's a good double-edged statement, right? Um, there are some people who withhold trust in God because they want infinite, they want omniscience. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. They want infinite knowledge. And that is not something God promises us. Um, however, um, there's the flip side of that statement where if you're convinced by a quick five second pitch over yeah. the, the the reliability of something um your faith may last five seconds <laughs> yeah uh and so what we want to cultivate in our churches and in our environments is the ability to g- put down deep roots and to mm-hmm. help people process their doubt in such a way right where deep roots cast wide shade right yeah. i think that if the church would understand and be able to reclaim god's desire to help uh, doubters, uh, and even people who say they have faith to strengthen their faith. What we're really talking about here is fulfilling Jesus's command to make disciples, Mm -hmm. right? The deeper your roots go down, the broader and the more shade you cast in the world for others. Uh, so some Mm -hmm. of the most passionate, uh, followers of Jesus that I know, uh, are, are those who are, have processed and have been very clear about their seasons and moments of doubt. Um, yeah. So I think that's one thing there's, there's probably no easy answers. Um, and then, and maybe the final thing, you know, if we're talking about some of the best things you can do with your doubt, um, to, I know it's very trendy to doubt. Um, everyone yeah. has a, has a moment of, of, you know, it's almost like deconstruction is a door that people have to pass through in order to be labeled authentic in order to be, mm. um, possess sainthood in, yeah. in new new evangelicalism as it were. And, uh, I don't think we have time to dive into deconstruction in full here. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I would, I would just in, invite people to be very wary of um, a process that is being sourced from ideas that aren't found in scripture. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm all for the reality that doubt is present in every follower of Jesus. Um, but at the same time, uh, deconstruction does not have to be true of you mm-hmm. in order to have an authentic faith. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think that an important part of this uh, conversation is me thinking about the word intimacy. Um, because yeah. our whole goal is intimacy with Jesus. Like that's what we're always aiming for. And you can't have intimacy with someone that you're pretending, uh, around. Right. So like yep. if I want intimacy with Jesus, I have to be honest with him about my doubts. And for some of us, we think, well, that means that our relationship's in jeopardy. It doesn't like that is insecurity speaking to you. That is fear speaking to you. It's not faith. In fact, the way that you get more intimacy with Jesus is being more honest with him about where you are. Because at the end of the day, he knows. Like you might be fooling your church. You might be fooling your parents. You might be fooling your friends. But especially during this pandemic, during this COVID-19 where you're stuck in your house and not able to do anything, you're not able to go to worship experiences, you're not able to go to church, you're not able to do these events, you know and Jesus knows that you haven't talked to him in a long time. <laughs> you haven't been reading. You haven't been like, if the only thing you've been doing is posting on social media, Bible verses, like you feel that crack in your soul. And what I would just simply say is go to God with that and yep. and talk to him and say, oh my goodness, I have major doubts. And then have a genuine wrestling with him. Um, I'm thinking about the marriage. Like everyone loves the honeymoon phase. Everyone loves the wedding ceremony where like everything looks great and everyone looks great because they have makeup on and everyone's clapping and cheering. But intimacy isn't developed simply at the ceremony. It's also developed in the bathroom when your wife has morning sickness and she missed the toilet while she was throwing up. And you have to <laughs> clean that sucker up. And you're like, this is the grossest picture of marriage possible. And I'm like, I mean, at least for me, I hate vomit. But that's also intimacy. It's caring for the other person when they're at their worst. And that is exactly how the the heavenly father that you have cares for you. And so if you're convinced to, in order to be a good Christian, I have to not acknowledge my doubt. I have to be silent about it. I have to just act like it's not there. You're wrong. God wants to, to love you in your fullness. Stop keeping that from him. And let him speak into those moments. Um, so maybe final thoughts. If you're talking to someone right now who is just maybe teetering between they have faith one day and they have doubt the next and they keep going back and forth, back and forth. Um, what's just a final word of encouragement you'd have for them in this moment? God's the God of the journey. The God who convinced you at whatever point that was is the God who's going to continue to fight to convince you in the future mm-hmm. um, and, and to encourage anyone who's listening. And that's, that's you um, to never let your doubt get processed as denial, mm-hmm. right? That, um, that firm, cold denial of, of who God is. Um, you know, people ask all the time, you know, what's the unforgivable sin? Uh, you know, is, is it, is it suicide? Is it divorce? Um, I don't believe any of those things. It's, it's not a tangible uh, sin that we commit in the sense of pointing to a practical, the, the unforgivable sin is ultimately a refusal to believe. And mm-hmm. that's, that's different than doubt. Doubt is denial in process. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where a lot of us live. And so I would encourage you, like if, if you're walking between these two things, I think there's a sense in which we can say uh, that 
that is the journey of the Christian life. And where am I getting that from, right? I want to bring that back to scripture. I look at Abraham, man. This is someone that the New Testament puts forward in Romans 4 as the man of faith, right? Like yeah. you think of all the people in scripture, right? I mean, the man of faith. I, I Yeah, that's, that's a, a pretty heavy moniker. That's a pretty yeah. heavy uh, name. And, and yet, right. So we have, uh, Abraham's life spelled out for us in Genesis. He lived 175 years and we have maybe 10 stories about him. Mm-hmm. Um, not even a story, a decade, not even a pivotal moment, a decade. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, uh, for a lot of us, the difficulty is walking from pivotal moment to pivotal moment through a lot of mundane, uh, difficult seasons of, towing the line. But when we look at Abraham, uh, Genesis 12, God calls him, he leaves, but he delays. Genesis 15, he goes and tries to find, uh, he says, God, my heir is not going to be my own son. It's going to be my servant. And God says, look at the stars. This is my favorite passage in all scripture. He says, look at the stars. uh, If you're able to count them, uh, I will make your descendants as many as these stars, if not more so. And the text just says, Abraham believed God, but the verb there is actually passive. It says Abraham was brought to believe by God. Wow. Uh, think, look at all that the, you talk about intimacy. Look at all the intimacy that God set that table in that moment mm-hmm. uh, to take him outside, to, to call him to look up and out into creation. Like if, if anyone's struggling to believe that God wants to process your doubt, um, look at Genesis 15. That's, yeah. that's where I go to say, Hey, God's not giving up. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering, do we have do we have any time to talk about some intellectual approaches? Um, totally. Yeah. I, I, how long are these normally? You may have to cut this one out. Thirty to forty minutes, but I can <laughs> uh, do a little bonus thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to knew this was happening with me. My goodness. Um, well, I, I guess my question to you is, from from a campus standpoint, like where do you find a lot of intellectual doubt mm-hmm. landing? Um, like what, what are some intellectual sides of things? Cause again, emotional, intellectual, they kind of all play together, mixed together, like syrup on a pancake. Um, yeah. what have you noticed is kind of like the hot button or magnet issues for, for intellectual stuff right now? Yeah. I think the biggest uh, thing for intellectuals right now centers around, uh, the scriptures and if they're reliable and trustworthy. Um, I think that that's such a major pivotal point, um, because if you typically ask someone, uh, how do you know that Jesus resurrected from the dead? Uh, if you ask a Christian that, they'll say, well, because the Bible tells me so. And then they'll go, well, I don't believe in the Bible, so I need you to tell me something else. Um, and and I would say, from an intellectual standpoint, there's really, really good reason to believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And there are great historians who can explain all of these things. Um, and so I think a lot of times it centers around um, maybe what Christians trust non-believers don't yet. And I think that sometimes we take people to the scriptures um, and we say, well, the Bible says that, so I believe it. And then an unbeliever will say, well, it also says a man survived in the belly of a fish for three days, and I don't believe that. So therefore, I don't right. believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So I think a lot of it centers around, are the scriptures trustworthy? Um, because if they are, that changes everything. Like you can believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, um, but if they're not, I think another point to point out, because I think the, the fish is, is, is an easy one that people point out, but I think even creation, they'll say, well, the scriptures say that the world was created in seven days, um, but I don't believe that. And so I think that that most doubt, I would say, always comes back to, can I trust the scriptures? 
Um, and obviously that's a very loaded question uh, that could probably be five podcast episodes, but <laughs> I think that's where most intellectual doubt comes from. Um, okay. Well, that's helpful. Uh, as a pastor, I'm, I mean, I want to learn as well. Like you have a unique role in where you're at and I know we're, we tag team it, tag team it this summer. Um, mm. but I, I, I agree with you. I, I will never forget when I asked that question to a fellow, um, pastor uh, that I work with here. Um, and he mentioned the fact that when Jesus was resurrected, right. And walking on the road to Emmaus, there were two men who, um, he, he starts walking with and they don't recognize that it's the risen Jesus. And mm -hmm. it says that Jesus took the time to point out and explore how the scriptures needed to be fulfilled. And yeah. it says he, he interpreted all things according to himself. And, mm -hmm. and he made this remark. He said, if Jesus thought that the scripture was good enough to defend his resurrection, when he's resurrected in their presence, yeah. that's good enough for us. And this is where I'll pull in something, um, you know, when people are asking about the trustworthiness of scripture um, in that particular moment, too, there's there's a difference between a, a high context and a low context culture. And Jesus in that moment is talking to a high context culture. They had all the shared values. They had the story. They had all of these uh, realities for meaning that don't always work for us in mm -hmm. our world. Uh, there's not a lot of shared value. That scenario that you pointed out of um well, if the Bible says it, I believe it. And someone's like, well, I don't believe the Bible. So where does that leave me? Yeah. Um, I think there's room for followers of Jesus to help people bring them to a point where if you can at least see the Bible as historically reliable. Mm -hmm. um, I, I live my life as the scripture is the authority, the very word of God. But yeah. we also know that people have devoted their life to studying this book as a historical document. So can you at least come on the train to say, okay, the Bible is historical uh, and, and, and being able to approach the resurrection of Jesus from that historical vantage point? Um, because yeah. like you said, if Jesus is alive, then what he said about scripture is true. So scripture's mm -hmm. trustworthiness or authority as the present word of God um, yeah. follow if someone can wrap their minds around not just the historical reliability of the resurrection, but then also mm -hmm. the spiritual work that happened yeah. at the resurrection because there's two questions yeah. there did jesus rise from the dead number one and number two what does that change about my life and yeah. and i sometimes i think mm -hmm. we have a lot of christians who believe in the historical reliability of jesus's resurrection but they have not yet yeah. put their faith trust in what jesus accomplished for them in that historical moment um yeah. and i tell you if we had time to process this again that asking the question what does jesus jesus's resurrection personally mean for me mm -hmm. was a doubt that bore a lot of fruit. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, 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 w I wanted to ask and cover the intellectual side because I know that there are probably people out there who are looking for those intellectual answers. And yeah. I can only say probably one of the best things you could do uh, is to ask your pastor, ask someone that you respect, right? Plausibility always finds its home in a person. That's, mm -hmm. that's how Augustine, one of the great saints throughout all of church history, came to know Jesus. Was he was a skeptic, mm -hmm. but he met Ambrose. And everything changed for him because he met someone who was robust intellectually, but surrendered spiritually. And that, yep. that racked Augustine's world. So, yeah. uh, you know, I would think anyone who's struggling processing intellectual doubt, find someone who has that same intellectual vigor yes. around you mm -hmm. and, and beat down their door. <laughs> I yeah. mean, seriously, beat down their door um, to do that.
Yeah, I think that something I would say, especially to the intellectual saying, well, why do you trust the historicity of the scriptures? Um, Because there are some people who will tell you that the Bible is nothing more than religious propaganda, Um, which, first of all, uh, I don't know how you could come to that conclusion by reading the Gospels, because if it is propaganda, it is the worst kind of propaganda that has ever existed throughout history. It never should have lasted more than two years. Um, If you look at the resurrection of Jesus— what you're going to see is that the first person to announce the resurrection of Jesus was a woman. And in our context, you're thinking, great, empower women, like let them be. Okay, in the context of when the scriptures were written, women had no rights. They weren't even allowed to testify in court because their word was not considered trustworthy. And so if you want to start a movement that ends up impacting everyone around the world, at this time period, you don't put women in it. So that's right. one thing. A woman is the first person to announce the resurrection of Jesus. The second thing is the the you could say if you were not a Christian that Christianity was built upon 11 men and upon their, you would say, propaganda. If that is true, then why is it that the first person to preach the resurrection of Jesus, so this is an Acts, is Peter, the one who had just denied even knowing him, that he swore he didn't know him. I mean, if this is propaganda, it's the worst kind because the leaders— look kind of terrible. And Mm -hmm. the people with the authority uh, to announce the resurrection of Jesus are people who in that time period didn't have authority. Um, And so you have to, if you're going to call this religious propaganda, which there are people today um, that would say that, um, you have to explain why it's the worst kind of propaganda ever created and why it has lasted for 2,000 years and why it is not losing speed. I know that yeah, some people and, think, okay, well, Europe is becoming less Christian and America is becoming less Christian. That's just the Western world. The Eastern world is exploding with the gospel. We are not shrinking. The church yeah. is not dying. The church is thriving. It just might not be in the city that you're in. Um, and right. so you really have to wrestle with that. Yeah, I, I think for that religious propaganda argument, um, which would easily pit the disciples of Jesus as just re- political zealots, right, that, that Jesus— was supposed to perform a resurgent Israel and, and a new nationalism mm-hmm. um, in the Roman Empire. If if that were so, then and there are people that have looked at this right that the transition from Jewish to Gentile in terms of that move in Paul's ministry is what kept Christianity going. And and from the standpoint though of well, Christianity was a a from the skeptical standpoint that that Christianity was a, a Jewish nationalism movement uh that that then had to be adopted into a gentile context in order to survive and it 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 blew up because it wasn't intended to do that i think you got to look at paul then Mm -hmm. and say what did paul think he was doing in his ministry and and paul was certainly not saying jewish nationalism the jewish state is dead let's go make jewish colonies everywhere that mm-hmm. was that's that's precisely exactly the opposite of what he did. Yes. So, you know, you you follow the train of secession all the way through. There's nothing about Christianity um, by and large that would there's there's a lot of strong evidence to suggest that Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus was a historically verifiable event that radically altered those who came in contact with the mm-hmm. resurrected Jesus. I think one of the most powerful things we could probably say about doubt, though. The neurologist can tell us this is that it's the, the power of something is not the strength of the argument from an ideological standpoint. It's it's found in the desire of the person mm-hmm. um, that, that what we want to believe 
sometimes tips the scales of what we should believe from a logic yeah. standpoint. Mm-hmm. And that to me is terrifying. Um, that, but here's the good thing. God operates on our desires. Mm-hmm. God works to do the work, not just to convince us of an idea, but to actually change our hearts to want what God wants for us. And yeah. that's rescue. That's salvation. Yeah. Um, that God, like Paul Tripp would say, God, God saves me from me. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's good news. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so maybe I'll give a, a final thought to those who maybe are listening and teetering between belief and doubt. Um, something that I want to say is I am so sorry that up until this moment, you have not heard that doubt is more than, um, that it's acceptable in your faith journey. I think a lot of times we think that faith is a light switch, that it flips on and that it should never go off. But faith is far more of a pilgrimage. It's a journey with Jesus and you're you're journeying with him until the end. And so I remember I was sitting in a room one year ago with someone who was just struggling with immense doubt. And they were like, Nathan, what the heck do I do? And I was like, well, the good news for you is I've been a skeptic my whole life. (laughs) And so (laughs) here are some things that have helped me. Uh, First of all, Thomas, who we mentioned, when he was experiencing doubt, it says that Jesus showed himself um, to Thomas and he says, uh, stop believing, uh, stop doubting and believe. And then Jesus says, um, I recognize how hard it is for people who do not see me to believe. So he says, blessed is he who does not see and yet chooses to believe. So Jesus puts a blessing on those of us who are living in the 21st century wrestling with faith. The second thing I'd say is in 1 Peter, uh, Peter is acknowledging uh, this wrestle of skepticism with not uh, with, with faith. And he says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Anytime I'm talking to someone that's experiencing doubt, I always say, do you love Jesus? And they normally very quickly say, yes, absolutely. And then I read this verse to them and I say, the scriptures acknowledge that it can be hard to have belief when you cannot see it with your own eyes. But the whole point of faith is love for Jesus. And so maybe you still have questions and maybe those questions aren't going to be answered on the side of heaven. But I want to tell you that Jesus puts a blessing on you. He says, blessed are those who believe and do not see. I want to tell you that Peter acknowledges your doubt, but he also acknowledges your love for God. And that is the focus of this uh, conversation really is that you would grow in your love for Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that is the advice I would give to someone teetering between um, faith and doubt. 